Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. And this this, uh, series move has been all about those things that we must let go of in order to move on if we're followers of Christ. There are things from our past that we need to let go of so that we can move on to God's very best. And today we're going to be talking about those things from the old life that we need to let go of that have to do with sex and sexuality. And so this is going to be a, uh, uh, another message, another series in which Paul is dealing with real life issues saying you've got to let go, you've got to let go in order to move on. And what I want you to see this morning is we're looking particularly at the view of sex that we must let go of in order to move on in our lives with Christ. There is a new view that God has for us as followers of Jesus that he wants us to adopt and that he wants us to live out a new view, different from the old view that characterized our lives before Christ and still characterizes the world around us. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 10. You'll find that passage on page 978 in the worship Bibles provided for you underneath the chair in front of you. So Paul is calling believers to let go of their past and enter into a brand new future. I want you to see with me that Paul is addressing here in this passage how and why believers are to live their lives differently from the world around them sexually. How and why? And uh, if you uh, think that you know exactly what I'm going to say this morning, uh, chances are you will be wrong. Some of it you will know, some of it you will not know. I want you to listen uh, very carefully, very closely. If you don't normally take notes, maybe today would be a really good time to take notes. Let me encourage you in that as we look at the Word of God together and then we break it apart to see what it says, what it means and what we are called to do with it if we are followers of Jesus. He says, chapter five, verse three, but having talked about the love of God in Christ, having talked about how they are to live with love, self-sacrificial love, he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore... Do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, all that is right, and all that is true. Now today I want to speak with you about why God insists so strongly that believers view sex so differently from the world around them. 
why God insists so strongly that believers view sex so differently from the world around them. I want to show you how God asks his people to take a new view of sex, a different view of sex, as opposed to the old human view of it. Now, I will tell you right from the very beginning that this will seem odd to us in our present cultural moment. Christians are often portrayed as holding an old, out-of-date view of sex while our culture boasts of advancing a new, enlightened view of it. But there are two realities that we need to see before we dig into this text that will help us to get a, a clearer perspective of what Paul says and why Paul says it and the way Paul says it. Two realities. The first reality is this, generally speaking, where our culture has come to be and where our culture seems to be headed in terms of sexual practices and values is not really new at all. It is actually ancient. The Ephesians, to whom Paul is writing in this very letter, for example, have personally come out of and still live in a culture where adulterous relationships, prostitution, homosexuality were all part of the normal, everyday life. They were accepted. They were actually expected. There were no accepted social standards to speak of when it came to sexual relations. And so consequently, sex in all its forms was rampant in pagan Greco-Roman society. It didn't require the commitment of marriage. Uh, You weren't expected to associate sex with emotional commitment or love, which is precisely where we have come to again. And that is where we are now. Sex in all its forms is more and more rampant in our increasingly pagan culture. And in our highly sensualized culture, real love is becoming rare, while sex has become very cheap. It's cheap in America because it's easy to experience and it's seen as just another human need like sleeping or eating. It doesn't require the commitment of marriage. We aren't expected uh, much anymore to associate sex with emotional commitment or love. The point is, and I want you to see this, the ways we are understanding sex today are not progressive. They aren't new. They're old. And the way we're viewing it today is the way it's been viewed for centuries by other cultures, time and time again. Someone say, well, all right, well, so what? Uh, so what? So what about this? So, so what about this old view? Um, it's a good question. This old view of sex, relabeled today as new, is quite frankly doing us a lot of damage. And every now and then in our culture, we get hints of the damage and we get awakened to the damage. Can I say hashtag me too? Can I say that? A second reality that we desperately need to see is that going back to this ancient take on sex as cheap is doing what it, to us what it's always done to others. And that is it's making relationships and people cheap. It's making life cheap. Mark Regnerus, associate prof of sociology at the University of Texas at Austin, has written a book, Cheap Sex, The Transformation of Men, Marriage, and Monogamy from Oxford Press. And he, he makes 
these points uh, powerfully. And he shows that our culture's view of sex actually encourages us to see each other as objects to be used rather than as people to be loved. And so today what's happening in our culture is we've sown to the wind and we're reaping a, a whirlwind. We decided uh, that it was okay for men to see and treat women as objects. So Miss America had a bathing suit contest. I'm so glad they got rid of that. Doesn't that sound odd coming from a man? But I am because it promoted a wrong view of women. Women are not objects. Okay, ladies, that's a great point, place for you to say amen. amen. <laughs> women are not objects. Amen. And just eight of you are convinced of that. <laughs> women are not objects. Amen. There we go. Let those voices out, ladies. Let those voices out. They're not. But here's what we did in our culture. Not only did we do that, not only did we do that, then we said, okay, if it's okay for men to make women objects, it's okay for women to make men objects. And we took that step. And we're just beginning to, to see how foolish we have been. And we have today the grotesque Harvey Weinstein sexual assault scandal and scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal. And we're finally acknowledging that something's wrong, something's seriously wrong. But the truth is we, we don't seem to know why or what's gone wrong. And the case needs to be made that there is much cultural hurt and personal hurt in our culture fundamentally because we have a wrong view of what sex is and what sex is for sex is a gift but when it's seen and used in the wrong ways it brings all kinds of pain and as soon as I say that I'm very much aware that you already know that at some level. And I'm careful when I say that and I understand that. And that's why in so many ways this is a sensitive subject. Um, and I think Paul certainly understood that because he knew to whom he was writing. Columnist uh, David Prince said recently, sex is a remarkably intimate act that often has a profound emotional impact. An ethic or a view like ours in America that indulges that drive while also denying the emotional significance of sex will inevitably wreck lives. And that is what we're seeing in spades right now. So it's no surprise then that as Paul is telling God's people to take off the old life and put on the new life in Christ, he takes up the subject of sex. He has to take up the subject of sex. And he challenges believers to take a new or a different view of it from the view that they held before they were in Christ. And he makes the case that sex is very serious to God and serious for the new life that Christ gives. Now, I want us to hear this morning what Scripture says and consider what God might say to us personally by His Spirit through His Word. 
Now, I want us to nail down a very clear answer to an urgent, pressing question for followers of Jesus living in the 21st century America that we live in that is increasingly pagan. Why, why does new life in Christ require a new, different view of sex, particularly from our culture? Why does it require? Underline those two words, why and require. That, that's the thrust of today's, of today's study. Paul helps us to answer this question for the weekend. He's reminding followers of Jesus how they are not to live out the old ways in their, in the old, uh, their old lives in, in, their, in the new way. And so he specifically focuses on the wrong use of sex, what the Bible calls sexual sin. And so he shows us three things. He shows us, first of all, what sexual sin is to God, how God sees it, how God defines it. Secondly, what sexual sin says about God. And thirdly, why sexual sin ultimately matters to God. What it is, what it says, and why it matters. What it is, what it says, and why it matters. And uh, before you check out on me, before you uh, assume you know what I'm going to say, just hear me out all the way through as we unpack the scripture. You've got a right to disagree uh, with, with me if you, if you choose to. Um, you have a right to disagree with God's word if you choose to. That is your choice. But uh, you've heard, God, you've heard the, the, uh, the case of our culture. You hear it every day, all the time. And uh, rarely do you ever get to hear the case uh, for sex that comes from God and his word uh, from the pulpit. We're afraid to talk about it right here. We're afraid to talk about it. We're afraid of offending people and, and all of that kind of thing. But as, as, a, as a preacher of the word of God, as I'm making my way through a passage, if I come up to sex, I've, I'm gonna, I've got to preach on, on sex. And so here we are. And aren't you glad you're here? Let's go. Let's go. All right, first of all, let's look together at what sexual sin is to God. How does he see it? What is sexual sin to God? He says, Scripture says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are for you as followers of Jesus out of place. Now, the, crit the, the essential uh, way to understand what sexual sin is to God is to understand, first of all, in verse uh, 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 3, what these uh, vices are that he identifies. What is sexual immorality? What is, all what is all impurity? What is covetousness? Each of these helps us to understand what sexual sin is to God, what it includes, what it involves. So let's break those apart. Sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia from which we de de define or, or derive our word for pornography. It's a term that the Bible uses to refer to any kind of sexual intercourse outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. Jesus and the Old Testament, Jesus and the New Testament portray sex as divinely designed, intended for one man and one woman in a marital covenant. What is more, the New Testament requires of followers of Jesus an unconditional obedience to the absolute prohibition against sexual immorality. Now, the question immediately comes, why is this such a big deal? Because we were told in our culture it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. At least we've been told that for a while. We'll answer that in a moment. But the point that I want you to see here is that for God, sex well used, rightly used, 
is a heterosexual, monogamous relationship experienced within the covenant of marriage. And that sex misused is for God serious and his warning against it here and elsewhere in the scripture is unvarnished. Next, notice that Paul addresses what he describes as all impurity. This phrase also has sexual connotations. It signifies every form of unrestrained immoral sexual behavior. It includes sexual immorality, but also describes how that immorality can be practiced without restraint. In chapter 4, verse 19, Paul says earlier that pagan culture easily encourages living with sexual uh, immorality in an unbounded way where there are no limits, there are no rights and wrongs. And that consequently, the pagans, he says, and I quote, become callous and they give themselves up to sensuality, the pursuit, the pursuit of sex, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What he's pointing to there is this lie that we human beings believe about all sin, but are particularly prone to believe about sex. And that is that sex gives meaning and sex gives value to our lives, meets a need, and that getting or having more of it means getting and having more life. So you give yourself up to it greedily, you give yourself up to it repeatedly. Uh, to do that makes perfect sense once you've bought into the lie. This is where life comes from. This is part of what it means to have a full and a meaningful life. So all kinds of greedy, repeated sexual impurity, which is what Paul is speaking of here, includes all sex outside of marriage along with every form of pornography and sexual leering after another person, which brings us to the final vice on Paul's list, and that is covetousness. And when you're reading this verse, you're going, okay, I, I get sexual immorality, and then I get impurity, but then it's like he just said, I'll throw in covetousness. It's like, what? Greed? What? Which is idolatry. What? what? That just doesn't seem to fit very well. Covetousness is, of course, an inner craving of the heart. It is the source of, of every insatiable desire we have for more. Paul calls it idolatry. We worship whatever it is we think will give us life. And in this context, it's the coveting or the craving for another person's body for selfish gratification. And so it, it is a gross kind of twisted attitude and approach to the lives God has given us. Covetousness causes us to see our own bodies and the bodies of others as tools to be used to get whatever good we can from them for ourselves rather than seeing our bodies and the bodies of others as having been given to us so that we might give. And so followers of the Jesus whose own body was used for unselfish sacrifice on the cross can hardly square this selfish use of their own bodies with his unselfish use of his body. And that's why Paul says these things must not even be named among you. This is so contrary and counter to everything you profess and everything that Christ has done for you. The absence of sexual sin and such greed is the only proper condition among saints who now form the new body of Christ called the church. Paul doesn't stop there. His warning of verse 3 continues into verse 4. 
where he moves from prohibited sexual behaviors to prohibited sexual speech. He goes on and he says obscenity and foolish sexual talk and coarse joking about sex are also to be avoided because they too are inappropriate. In other words, what believers, uh, 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 we believers are not to even joke about the things that we should never be about. Why? Well, as we've seen constantly in this series, our thinking drives our living. And though some of us, some of us seem especially adept at speaking before we think, the truth of the matter is we all have words which we say that come out of thoughts we've already had. Every word spoken, Jesus teaches us, comes from the heart and the mind. And so this warning about obscenities and foolish sexual talk and coarse joking with its double entendre is ultimately a warning about the kinds of thinking that brings about this kind of talking. So Paul says, beware. Even thinking and talking about sexually immoral things. Guard your mouth, guard your mind. Why? Because thinking and talking about sexual sin, watch this, creates an atmosphere in your own life where they become more tolerable than acceptable, than permissible, and ultimately more conceivable, and finally more doable. And herein lay the power of uh, porn of all varieties. What your eyes see and your ears hear, your mind thinks about. What your eyes see and your ears hear, your mind thinks about. What your eyes see and your ears hear, your mind thinks about. So Paul is challenging believers, implicitly saying, you must guard your thoughts and imagination when it comes to sexual sin. But how do you do that, particularly, particularly in a world like ours where sex is everything and, and is used to sell almost everything? How do you do that? Well, guarding our thoughts and our imaginations actually involves being deliberate about what our eyes see and about what our ears hear so that our minds aren't fed with ideas and pictures that can, in turn feed lust-driven thoughts and imaginations. By guarding our minds, we guard our mouths and ultimately our bodies. Okay, so no. All right, so just let me go old school for a minute. Just, just, you just gotta understand sometimes what comes from the past was actually right. So here's what I want to say to you, okay? You need to be really careful about the stuff you see on that big screen or that little screen on your smartphone. Now, I know, I know, I know, I know. Some of you grew up in, in legalistic churches and they told you, you know, you could not go to a G-rated movie in a cinema because it was sin. I don't want you to hear me saying that, but here's what I do want you to hear me say. I'm on the other side of extraordinary damage done by sexual sin. I see it in my office. I see the tears and the heartbreak 
I see the mess on the other side. And what I'm saying to you, I'm not just talking to, to parents who have kids saying, you know, you need to be careful what your, what, what your kids' eyes see and what their ears hear. I'm, I'm not just saying that. Of course you should. But I'm speaking to adults, and I'm saying to you, there are times when you're, you're, you're streaming some series or something, and, it, and um, it presents to you a picture of sexual immorality, and you need to have the guts and the wisdom to pick up your remote and press stop. Oh, but I'm an adult. I can handle it. Yeah, I've heard that. I've seen how adults handle it. I'd never do that. Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Everybody who ever did that had a time when they said they would never do that. What your eyes see and your ears hear, your mind thinks about, and what your mind thinks about eventually comes out in the things your hands do. If I could tell you the story of the pain I've seen. I say, I'm, I'm not mad about it. I'm not, I'm not yelling at you, am I? And I'm not, I'm not belittling, you, belittling you. I'm not berating you like maybe you saw some preacher do way back in the day. I, I'm not doing that. I'm pleading for you because I care for you. That stuff never ends well. So what the Holy Spirit through Paul is working hard to help us see is that uh, what is normal in the lives of everyone around us is absolutely abnormal, even alien for us, who are those of us who are followers of Jesus, and it's alien to the lives Christ has given us. If you're a faithful follower of Jesus, you are not, nor will you ever be culturally normal in a pagan world. You just aren't. You won't be. Because Jesus wasn't culturally normal. You will never be if you're faithful to him. You will never fit in sexually. You will always stand out. You will always stand out, not because you're a hater, but because you're seeking to be like Jesus. Jesus was a legendary lover, not only of his father, but he was a legendary lover of people and a champion for the things that he is that the Father has given to help humanity to flourish. And so because we live in a very pagan culture when it comes to sex and sexual ethics, that's where you will stand out. The moral principles that govern your personal behavior and your view of what God says is best, of what God says is right, good, true, and life-enhancing when it comes to sex as he gave it and meant for it to be, it will mark you. It should mark you. Just this week, on June 4th, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision, the Supreme Court decided 7-2 to two 
that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission violated the First Amendment rights of Jack Phillips, the Christian baker who refused to create a wedding cake for a same-sex couple, just as he refused to bake cakes for Halloween and for divorce parties on the basis of his Christian beliefs regarding sex and marriage. And Phillips' faith was publicly mocked by the commission and publicly condemned his faith, his Christian faith, which is my faith. And many of you, your faith was condemned as despicable, as the reason for slavery, and as the reason for the Nazi Holocaust. But I want to remind you, loved ones, of what Paul is actually reminding the Ephesians of as well. Just because everybody else is doing it, just because it's legal, doesn't make it life-giving or good or right or true. And just because everybody else is doing it and it is legal doesn't mean we can. Because at the end of the day, loved ones, we aren't everybody else. We are now very different in very significant ways. If we're believers and not married, we don't live together. We don't vacation alone together. We don't go alone on overnight trips together. We don't share hotel rooms or apartments to save money. We don't have premarital sex to see if we're compatible enough for marriage. Let me just pause right now and just tell you a secret that you need to know. Nobody is compatible for marriage. dumbest idea ever. It takes 50 years even to get started being compatible for marriage. You say, how do you know? I've been married 37 and we're still not compatible. And it's my fault. It's not her fault. It's all my fault. But I'm working on it. I'm growing. But that's not who we are. That's not what we do. It doesn't reflect our master. When it comes to sexual ethics, we aren't everybody else. We are now very different in very significant ways. We take the view that is new to us since we've stepped out of the old life, different from the world, but is ultimately the oldest view of sex there is, God's view. He created it. He gave it to us. We're the ones who messed it up. And as we do, we reject something others accept. Do you see that in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 4b? After warning believers to avoid the self-indulgence of the world around them and to be rid of the, uh, the old life sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, and filthy, foolish, and crude talk, we find Paul doing something he's taught us to expect. He gives us the new life alternative to replace the old things with. And as he does, he shows us what sexual sin says about God. Now stay with me here because this is a little subtle but uh, very important. We expect Paul to say something like, Get rid of sexual sin and talk and, in, and instead be sexually pure and clean up your speech. 
But he says, instead of these practices at the end of verse 4, in place of these practices, sexual immorality and impurity, let there be thanksgiving. And we're going, what? Thanksgiving? 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 Why? What, what's that all about? Well, in truth, something very significant is we've just seen sexual sin and covetousness are anchored in an attitude, a covetous mindset that says pleasing and satisfying self is the point and the purpose of life. It's what we might call the more for me life that says the point of life is me and more and more for me. And the result of this attitude in relation to sex is a degrading use of it where we use others' bodies for our own self-gratification. And the result, as we've seen, is that sex is cheapened as something we get for ourselves, and we are cheapened as we use others and others use us. But what we miss is the deeper attitude or the deeper mindset of hostility behind this attitude of self-gratification. It is an attitude behind the sexual covetousness, behind sexual immorality, is an attitude of hostility toward God himself. It's an attitude that's plagued us from the very beginning. And Paul describes it for us powerfully in Romans 1, where he describes the universal human story, saying, for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. There you go. But instead of giving thanks and honoring him, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And as a consequence, God has given them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. There's that word. So, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, sexual immorality. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. What's the lie? And they worshiped and served the Creator, themselves, their bodies, rather than the Creator. They worshiped and served the creature, themselves, their bodies, rather than the Creator. For this reason, God gave them up. He let them go to dishonorable passion. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The deepest attitude behind the covetous attitude of sexual sin is one that challenges the design of God for sex, which, as Jesus describes it, is simply this. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But what is most important for us this weekend is to see that this deeper attitude behind the covetous, self-serving use of sex, to see what it says about God. And what it says about God is this. Though I know him as my creator because he has shown himself to me in his creation, I'm not going to honor him as creator, nor will I follow his creation guidelines. And though he gave me himself and he gave me life, I'm not going to be thankful for either. Why? Because I don't find him and I don't find the life that he gives or offers to me to be enough. I need more. I actually want more. And so I will get more for myself of every good thing he's made. I will make any good thing a God to replace him and I will live for getting more of it instead of him. 
So instead of living giving thanks, I will live getting more of every good thing I find. And because sex is such a good gift, I will pursue it for myself with a passion that I choose in any way that I choose. And so it is in this way that sexual sin in all of its forms says of God, you are not enough and your plan is wrong. Your goal, your design for sex is off. And so it's right here that we begin to understand why Paul tells us at the end of verse 4 that the antidote or the remedy, watch this, for the pursuit of sexual immorality and covetousness is an attitude. It's a different kind of attitude. It's an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, how does that work? Think about it for a moment. By repentance and faith in the crucified and resurrected Christ, the Ephesians knew that Romans 1, 21 to 25 had been reversed in their lives. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to know that Romans 1, 21 to 25 has been reversed in your life. The universal human story has been turned on its head. And the new story of followers of Jesus is actually this. That in Christ, those who didn't honor God as God and didn't give thanks to him and who were futile in their thinking had their hearts opened. They discovered themselves to be fools and Christ made them wise. They exchanged the shame and the foolishness of the worship of created things. They've exchanged that for the worship of the one true God. And as a result of that, God has restored them, taken their impurity and restored them to Christ's purity. And as a result of that, they stopped dishonoring their bodies among themselves sexually because they stopped worshiping and serving themselves and their bodies exchanged all of that for the worship of the God who created them and redeemed them. And for this reason, God rescued them from their dishonorable sexual passions and restored them to honorable sexual passions as the gift he always meant it to be, a gift to be used in the larger gift of a covenant relationship between one man and one woman called sacred marriage. Because of what God has done in Christ, Thankfulness because of Jesus marks every area of their lives. It is a thankfulness that aligns every area of their lives with the original created purpose of God for them. And so they're thankful because God has taken their cheapened lives and their cheapened practices and made them sacred, aligned with his design and aligned with his purpose of giving life and making them his. In Christ, they've discovered that God is far more than enough for life and eternity, that he is life. And consequently, the more for me life has become the more for him life, and it has become a life of great thanksgiving. The attitude of sexual greed that used to characterize their deeds and actions is defeated because they found that Christ is more than enough. Sexual immorality is replaced then by thanksgiving for the gift of sex and for the strong life-giving limits of marriage. For a follower of Christ, bodies are no longer tools to be used to get whatever good I, I can get from them. Bodies represent people whom God treasures. And the spouses God gives us become our treasured gifts from Him. And instead of living with greed in our sexual relationships, we live with a gratitude for God's generosity to us, which is the hallmark of all Christian living. 
Because sex is one of God's gifts to humanity, joyful thanksgiving is the only true attitude towards sex. We aren't against it, we're for it. Go check out our nursery. It is a good gift. See, nobody wants to say amen. Nobody wants to clap. Oh, good, there's one. Okay, clap on the inside. But it is a good gift. It's God's gift. And a powerful gift. Within God's plan and God's design, one man, one woman, together for life in covenant. After showing us what sexual sin is to God and what it actually says about God, Paul finally shows us why sexual sin ultimately matters to God. And here his language gets really strong, and we need to unpack this so that we're sure we understand it clearly and correctly. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, don't become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, you used to live this way, and I know you did. But now you're different. Now you're changed. Now you're light in the Lord. So walk. Be who you are. Walk as children of the life. For the fruit of that kind of living, that kind of light, is found in all that is good, all that is right, and all that is true. So Paul gives us two more severe warnings and a final set of challenges when it comes to how we live our lives in a world like ours. His goal is to motivate believers in the direction of sexual purity in all its forms by showing them how seriously God takes sex and sexual sin. Because the acceptance of sexual sin is, as we've seen, an intentional rejection of God as the creator and sole giver of life. There are two things of which Paul says we can be sure. First, he says we can be sure, we can be certain that everyone, verse 9, who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Neither the Father nor the Son, whom he, he lovingly sent for sinners, will overlook or give a pass to those who persistently live and practice the uh, sexual sin outlined in verses 3 and 4. This means that such persons have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. None of the sexually immoral or impure have an inheritance in God's kingdom. That means plainly that any person who lives habitually disregarding God's design for sex has no place in his kingdom, past, present, or future. There's, they have no place in the cross, no place in the part of God's work now, and no place or part in his heaven. In fact, those who seek heaven in sex here find there's no heaven for them later. Why? Because God hates sex? No. He created it. He calls it good. Why? Because those who live that way have done what all sinners do. They've rejected God and placed self-gratification at the center of their 
existence. These persons specifically worship and live for the creature and its sexual pleasures rather than the creator and his pleasure. So let's be clear here. Those who once lived this way and have found new life in Christ are promised a sure place in that kingdom in the life to come. No sin is beyond Christ's reach or God's grace. There is no sexual sin that he will not forgive, no sexual damage that he cannot repair or heal. And that's good news. But here's what I want you to see. Professing believers are warned that if they live like unbelievers do, constantly giving themselves over to immorality and sexual impurity and greed, what they are showing is that their profession is not genuine. You don't have to be sexually pure in order to be saved. Nobody here has been. So we'll just move that one off the table. He's not saying you've got to be sexually pure to be saved. What he's saying is you will be habitually sexually pure if you are saved. And if you're not habitually sexually pure, then you're not saved. That doesn't mean you don't have sexual failures. You may. But they are not habits reoccurring, constantly taking place in your life. Any professing believer who has given himself or herself up without shame or repentance to this way of life deceives themselves about their relationship with Christ. And so Paul warns secondly, saying, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's easy for believers living in a sexually permissive and saturated culture to be influenced by its ways of thinking about sex. And Paul says you've got to be careful. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words, words that declare that what God has said is sexually immoral and wrong is now no longer immoral or wrong. Don't let anybody deceive you. They don't get the last word. They don't get the final say. Don't let anyone deceive you telling you that somehow the Spirit of God is now doing a new thing and that God has changed his mind on what is sexually permissible. That kind of talk is rampant in our day. Entire denominations have now denied and reinterpreted the words of Christ in Scripture to suit the culture. The followers of Christ must not be misled. Such arguments, Paul says, are empty, lacking truth. Here is the truth. As politically incorrect as any truth can be, God's holy judgment is coming on sin, all sin, sexual and otherwise. It's coming we don't get to make the rules of what is right or wrong or what makes life work or what doesn't make life work. Supreme Courts come and Supreme Courts go. Commissions come and commissions go. But the one who is here at the beginning is going to be the one who will, who will be here at the end. And he has told us again and again his word never changes And it's a fool's errand to believe otherwise. So, new life in Christ requires a different, new view of sex apart from that view held by our world. Why does new life in Christ require a new, different view of sex? Well, because the new life in Christ requires a new, different view of life. All of life given by God is meant to be sacred. All of life is meant to be aligned with God's purposes. All of life is meant to be 
fitted into what he designed and into what he desires. When I give my life to Christ, my life becomes his and my life becomes sacred. And that means every single aspect of my life is sacred. You teach at West Forsyth, is that correct? Your work is sacred. Maybe you never thought of it that way. Sometimes it might not feel that way. But because you belong to Christ, everything you do at West Forsyth, class of 79, go Titans. Everything you do, because you belong to Christ, everything you do belongs to him and is sacred. See, we take strong issue with the notion, the idea that sex is cheap. Because we take strong issue with the notion, the idea that people are cheap. You are not cheap. You are not cheap. You are not cheap. You are a treasure of God. You are not cheap. We take strong issue with that whole notion. And we say people matter, life matters, sex matters, and it's all meant to be sacred. And for us, it is. Would you stand to your feet all across the room? You know, this is one of those uh, this is one of those messages where the invitation time can be hard because this is so personal. It is so painful. Um, just grappling with the issue, coming to terms with what God has said and maybe where our lives are. But can I breathe a word of life into you right now and say, no matter where you've gone, no matter what you've done, I want you to know the God of the universe stands ready in His great Son, Jesus, to forgive you, to release you, to cleanse you, to put your brokenness back together. And if anybody can do it, He's the one. For some of us here today, it's our sexual past or maybe our sexual present that weighs so heavy. It makes us come into the presence of God, kind of hunkered down with our eyes down and fearful. Always wondering 
what he might do, what he might say, whether he could ever receive us. Because he's omniscient, he already knows everything you've already done. Because he is holy, everything you've done and everything I've done, sexually or otherwise, deeply offends him. But because he is radical love, sent his son and there on the cross our sin and his justice met Jesus took care of the penalty and resurrection announces that uh, his love has triumphed mercy wins forgiveness is real and those living broken and dead can be healed and made whole. And that is a real living truth for you right here, right now. Oh, how he loves you. Nothing you could ever do could keep him from receiving you, from forgiving you today. That's how great his love is. Yes, you're weak without him. And you can't breathe without him. And you can't make it through without him. But you aren't without him in Christ. In Christ. In Christ alone. Is the life that you need. I ask our prayer partners to take their places. If we can pray for you. If you're ready to surrender your past, your present to Christ this morning. It would be our privilege to pray with you, to pray for you, to help you find your way to Christ. You're a follower of Jesus today. I want to encourage you in a fresh new way. Take on the new view of this great gift of God and make it a, make a fresh declaration that you will live seeing sex as he sees it. Let's sing together. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kors. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.